welcome to the Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park and also not that too. Welcome to episode 31, Stegosaur, recorded on September 12th, 2022. The Queen is dead. Long live the king. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Thanks for joining me today. A continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L. Check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro is from the song Hummingbird, and our outro is Sacrifice to the Human Creature. Here's some corrections today. Pathetic fallacy is not when the weather sets the mood or foreshadows an impending disaster. That's just foreshadowing. Pathetic fallacy is when an inanimate object is given human emotions, like personification. Yes, human qualities can be given to the weather, and so then yes, that would be pathetic fallacy, but having devastating things happen during a devastating storm isn't pathetic fallacy. A storm brewing before a dark moment for your heroes is simply foreshadowing, and almost every movie does it. Jurassic Park does it, Gremlins 2 does it, and well, that's all the examples you really need, really. I had no idea what a martinet was. All my life I thought this was a reference to like a poppet or like a weasel or something, but no. A martinet is a strict disciplinarian. So in the quote, particularly the little martinet standing beside him in the control room on page 146 said by Muldoon, or thought by Muldoon, I thought this was a metaphor, but turns out a martinet is just a strict disciplinarian, which I guess is sort of an exaggeration on Hammond, but really more just of an, uh, of, uh, an adjective than a metaphor, and so that is my mistake. If I was quoting Tim Murphy where he yells, Stop the car! with exclamation into the podcast while you were driving, I hope you weren't confused and thought I was yelling at you to stop the car. And I can see now how that might have been distracting and distressing. I am sorry. Dinosaur news. Africa's oldest dinosaurs reveal early suppression of dinosaur distribution. A paper published in the journal Nature in August 2022 names a new late Triassic sauropodomorph, which was unearthed during excavations which occurred over the 2017 and 2019 seasons. The article was more specifically focusing on examining paleolatitudinal endemism, (laughs) and that's a mouthful as I understand it. Dinosaurs are believed to have been highly endemic in the late Triassic, or that they lived in a singular geographic area for a period of time before dispersing. So, if dinosaurs initially dispersed under paleolatitudinal-driven endemism, then theoretically, an assemblage similar to those found in South America and India, where some of the earliest dinosaurs have been discovered, should also be present in Carnian deposits of South Central Africa. The authors investigated, are there Carnian assemblages in South Central Africa similar to those of South America and India? Well, in this paper, they report on, quote, a new assemblage from Zimbabwe that includes Africa's oldest definitive dinosaurs, including a nearly complete skeleton of the sauropodomorph Embirosaurus raithi. It also included other Carnian-aged critters like a Hererosaurid, Cynodonts, an armored crocodilian relative, and Rhynchosaurs, all fossils typically found in Indian and South American formations of the same time period. Quote, This assemblage resembles other dinosaur-bearing Carnian assemblages, suggesting that a similar vertebrate fauna ranged into high-latitudinal Australopangeum. The distribution of the first dinosaurs is correlated with paleolatitudinal-linked climatic barriers. The dinosaurian dispersal to the rest of the supercontinent was delayed until these barriers relaxed. 
suggesting that climatic controls influence the initial composition of the terrestrial faunas that persist today. So I suppose what they're saying is Pangaea was an in- interconnected supercontinent upon which dinosaurs had free range, but they weren't found everywhere. Instead, they remained limited to the southern hemisphere in the Carnian Age, found only in India, South America, and now in Zimbabwean assemblages. They're believing this due to a paleolatitudinal barrier likely caused by climatic controls that may have manifested as an impenetrable desert or something like that. Now, who the heck is Imbirosaurus raithi? Its name means Michael Rath's or Wraith's Imbir lizard, where Imbir is a historical Shona word for the district in which the fossils were found. Michael Wraith is honored for discovering the first fossils in northern Zimbabwe. It was about six feet long, probably stood on two legs. Its small, serrated, triangle-shaped teeth suggest it was herbivorous or potentially omnivorous, and it had a relatively small head. The holotype NHMZ2222 is housed at the Natural History Museum of Zimbabwe, and it was uncovered from the pebbly Arcos formation in Zimbabwe. It's comprised of a partial skull, the lower jaws, cervical, dorsal, sacral, and caudal vertebrae, fragments of ribs, partial pectoral and pelvic girdles, and partial forelimbs and hind limbs. Our next story here is the, the osteology and affinities of Eotyrannus lengi, a tyrannosauroid theropod from the Wielden supergroup of southern England. Eotyrannus received a complete anatomical description in the journal Peer J in July 2022, providing the scientific world a long overdue glimpse at what this early tyrannosaurid was like. Specimen was about four and a half meters long, known from the interior part of its skull, a partial forelimb, its pectoral girdle, cervical, dorsal, and caudal vertebrae, rib fragments, some ilium, and hind limb elements. It was a subadult, and the paper takes the time to illustrate clearly how untyrannosaurus like it was, showing how far it was removed in the family tree from its famous great great grandkids, the Tyrannosaurus. While it had a similar scapulocoracoid, <laughs> its snout was much shorter, its hips weren't very similar, and it didn't have the special fused ankles called Arctometatarses, which made Tyrannosaurus awesome at pursuing prey over long distances. Some features that make it declaratively distinct species include differences in its dentary, uh, in its humerus, and tibia. Now, phylogenetically, it's considered intermediate between Proceratosauridae and Eutyrannus, ultimately describing it as, and this is a mouthful, a basal non Tyrannosaurid Tyrannosauroid. <laughs> the analysis does suggest that the clade Megaraptora be included within Tyrannosauroidea, which would be a bit of a phylogenetic shakeup. Including Megaraptora inside Tyrannosauroidea would significantly affect the clade's geographic range, which for a while had been considered from Asia, Australia, and South America. So think like Thailand and Japan, Patagonia, and Australia, of course. Whereas you know, Eotyrannus is from England, so that changes the geography quite a bit. And here is where science and evidence and more fossils and anatomical descriptions help to further inform the data. Where these creatures all fit, and what that means about what we can infer about them based on their place in the phylogenetic tree remains hypothetical for this time, but lucky for us, over time, the picture will only get clearer. So exciting days are ahead. And looking ahead, now that we've covered the corrections and the dinosaur news, please welcome my special guest this week. Everybody, I'd like to welcome back Gavin Michael Booth to the show. Gavin, how are you doing this morning? Doing just fine, just fine. Right on. So, Gavin, you'll recall, was uh, my terrific guest a few episodes ago. He's a Canadian-born director whose film, music, video, and commercial work has been featured around the globe in theaters and on television including collaborations with Third Eye Blind, which is really cool, NBC Universal, Sony Pictures, Bloomhouse, Royal Bank of Canada, and more. 
We're so happy to have you back. It's uh, it's great to be here. And again, as I said last time, this is a movie that could be talked about. It's a movie in series books <laughs> that could be talked about endlessly. Yeah. yeah and, got... I, and I've had a chance to watch uh, Dominion since Jurassic World Dominion since since our last chat. Yeah, that's that's right. There's hours of new original content uh, <laughs> that now exists <laughs> in the Jurassic World universe that uh, we all got to see. Do you think it was worth the wait after it was postponed? It, it was delayed uh, for, for <laughs> what, a full year because of the pandemic. They just, we can't show this to people. Yeah, they can't go to the theater. I, unlike Top Gun Maverick, which was worth every second of waiting and somehow is just a phenomenal sequel that should not be that good. Jurassic World Dominion to me was as flat and as lame and as <laughs> overbloated as I could have possibly imagined to the point that dinosaurs weren't ever scary mm-hmm. and never felt anyone was in danger it just felt like the biggest paint by numbers kind of script. I, I was thoroughly disappointed and really wished that the original cast had not signed on to come back and just sort of sully their their legacy further. <laughs> <laughs> I I liked seeing them. I didn't know that I was going to enjoy them in that film uh, to the degree that I did. I felt that characters seemed authentic to themselves. They didn't do anything unusual. They kind of they reprise their roles effectively i think and i, I thought yeah. they were nice in their roles i thought that was good the, the uh the uh <laughs> the conversation in the tent where uh, uh laura dern reveals that her her marriage has fallen apart was so uh like taken out of a can <laughs> it was so terrible it's over yeah, yeah it, it was like almost like hallmark level writing sometimes i was like okay yeah we're just we're just I'm not a fan of movie dialogue that just says what the plot is versus mm-hmm. like things coming up in subtext and, and finding more creative ways to write it, you know? Yeah. Um, you know. It was but, unusually yeah. like two movies in one movie, which isn't normally a recipe for success. Um, the, the locust plot was just so bizarre. <laughs> Maybe it was three movies in one movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because you had, you had the new cast, the old cast, you know, eventually merging. The idea... Yeah, the idea of kind of like having a new Jurassic Park in this sanctuary, like they're they're def, def, It's again, most movies that I don't enjoy, especially sequels. It's like the concepts are very interesting. The execution of the concepts is, is mm-hmm. where where I find things tend to be lacking. You know, build a good story around. Uh, I will just say, original no offense to him. No offense to him as a human. I love Safety Not Guaranteed. I thought Jurassic World One was fun, uh, but. I am so glad Colin Trevorrow did not direct Star Wars Episode Nine, even though I also didn't enjoy what J.J. Abrams said with it. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And those those trilogy those these trilogies, the two of them are seem to be connected in a way. And I don't exactly know how it is, but like when I think about trilogies, there's the kinds where you have the the first trilogy concept kind of emerges where you make an excellent movie that people love and see, so then you make more of them and you mm-hmm. put, you know, the characters that people have fallen in love with into new ideas. And the other idea is that you take you know, an existing intellectual property that has too much content. And so then you expand that into a three novel or sorry, a three movie uh, production, which is another way to do it. Or um, I think Peter Jackson will take a very small short story and turn that into three movies if you can. <laughs> yes, the hub, the hub. Again, it's it's the it's where the integrity of why the sequels, or especially if you say it's a trilogy because the last one was a trilogy. It's like does it does it have to be? Yeah, and like, it just be a fourth movie and done. 
Yeah. And that's so interesting that you're right. Now they just say declaratively, we are going to make another trilogy. That's And that's yeah. bizarre. Like, well, I don't know. There's going to be three of them. And I think when it felt like they weren't written with the same story in mind, there wasn't an overarching sense to it all. Like, they, there were three independent movies about the same characters, but it didn't feel... Like, in both the, the Star Wars and the... Mm-hmm. I guess Star Wars is a little bit more connected, but... <laughs> Yeah, like maybe their first meeting should have been, all right, where's the arc of this trilogy go? Yeah. Let's, let's map that out. Not paint ourselves in a corner, but let's let's have some sort of North Star to aim towards versus mm. just changing it up drastically each time. Uh, yeah, it, I, I think the, you know, nostalgia is great. We all get nostalgic when we see these characters. And I, I really think nostalgia is like a, um, it's a really powerful drug to make people like, overlook or forget the bad writing and the mm-hmm. bad plotting because there's like south park has a brilliant episode about member berries these these berries that you eat that just make <laughs> you nostalgic for things like oh i remember star wars let's have more star wars like, yeah star wars <laughs> is great let's have lots more of that yeah i i i think the nostalgia factor for me at least i it, it's not good storytelling just to see the things that i like keep coming back I think they have to be inventive. And again, Top Gun Maverick, I think one of the 10 best sequels ever made. Okay. Um, and that has no right to be, have you, I don't know if you've seen it yet. I haven't but seen Top Gun. It's enough. phenomenal. I don't even like the first Top Gun. Like I, I, enjoy, I saw it like only four years ago. I didn't see it as growing up. Mm-hmm. I didn't have that rah-rah 80s nostalgia for it. I watched it and went, I understand why this was popular. I can see how it was huge in the 80s. Not a whole lot of plot going in this movie. And this movie defies it all and it did like what terminator 2 did where arguably it's a better sequel or the godfather 2 or empire mm-hmm. strikes back or toy story 2 and then toy story 3 but i think that i think sometimes that's the distance and, and the patience we're like i'm sure in 1988 1990 you know like tom cruise was constantly throwing another treatment read this we got a top gun sequel we got a top gun sequel <laughs> and held out 34 years to make the right one or james cameron will do a seven-year gap or now with avatar 2 which i'm you know that's the next one to see if like <laughs> does he actually have a story it took 12 years to develop and do it i'm like i hope i hope it's it's because it was all about getting the story right not just making the cgi better mm-hmm. yes well i guess tom cruise what was the instead of making the sequel to the to top gun he was making sequels to that, mission impossible yeah, all those mission impossibles yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they never stopped making those things i think i think they still have those coming out they're great. Yeah, there's there's one shooting right now, one coming out next summer. It's like a two-parter that's like supposed to be the last two chapters. But mm-hmm. uh, and they're all highly entertaining. They're up there with the Bond movies now in terms of how much they deliver. That's cool. And he has to go into like traction every time he finishes filming, doesn't he? He's uh, he usually I mean, breaks integral parts of his body. It. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah good fall, for him. I think Mission Impossible Fallout had that ankle break when he's jumping from building to building. You know, yeah. which is in the movie that they kept the shot in the movie. You have to, don't you? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think you, you owe it you owe it to somebody. If they break their body for your movie, you can use the footage. Like yeah. It doesn't wreck the story. It, it's got to go in. I wonder, I guess he doesn't break character when he breaks his ankle. That's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, he finished He finished the shot running on a broken. But I think there's also that, that small window of adrenaline where you're like, I didn't. I oh, didn't yeah. Know. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that gets I you. I didn't know what had happened yet. You feel it the I next think, day. Yeah. I, <laughs> It, it's what what shocks me about all sequels in Hollywood is like, you know, you, if you're Kathleen Kennedy, if you're Universal Studios, if you're Steven Spielberg executive producing Jurassic Park sequels, 
don't you have the ability to, to like a fat king to just sit back and be like, I find me the best Jurassic Park story. Mm. And is can, could you not get 500 submissions from like all the top writers around the world in film and TV? And if you're telling me that Jurassic World Dominion was the best concept that was pitched or could have been used, I, I don't believe it. But at the same time, maybe... I don't know. I think people just get too far away from what the what the core thing was. And and really, did Jurassic Park ever need a sequel? You know, it's a pretty contained story. Yeah, to, yeah. to keep coming up with a reason that the same characters keep getting trapped and being chased by dinosaurs is, is a pretty limiting scope of what you can do with the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was an excellent one shot. It is hard to, to expand that. And they always had trouble. And there's some there's some beautiful moments in there that like Bryce Dallas Howard when she's dipping under like the the lake water mm-hmm. and and they do the shot moving from above underneath with her and it, it's got its snout right over the water like searching for her. Mm-hmm. and if she if she runs out of oxygen it's game over if she surfaces there, there's some really beautiful moments in there and and some practical dinosaur effects like visually it's stunning you know but it's just like it the story the story just matters too much to me to. Um, you know, I'm, I'm excited, and, and and again, like the Star Wars comparison to like Andor starts this week. Mm-hmm. You know, and Andor starts tomorrow, and it like I don't know something about the vibe of that. I'm just like, oh, that looks like it might they might have got it right, might have done something interesting, versus just like let's bring Obi Wan and Anakin back, and they're gonna have a rematch that we never knew about. <laughs> Please stop, stop filling in every hour of every day of what happened in the Star Wars universe. It becomes yeah. very thorough, doesn't it? Yes. And it's, it's also one of the, obviously we don't have Michael Crichton anymore, but I, I wonder if they've ever, like if the publisher or anybody's ever thought like, what if we opened up the Jurassic World like novel side of things and like let people write, mm-hmm. you know, or an anthology book uh, of short stories set in Jurassic Park or the Jurassic Park yes. world, you know, like you does ha- it always have to be movies? I know there's the, I haven't watched the cartoon series. People seem to, to really enjoy it for what it is. Um, or, or and there was the short film that that felt m- more exciting than Dominion in some ways. Yeah. <laughs> you make an excellent point that they're, uh, yeah, having having a series of novels that kind of explore the other sides would be very interesting. And uh, and from like, because I think there's a lot of Star Wars stuff that was produced either like I haven't seen all the the animated productions that they've had, mm-hmm. but like I feel like they take a lot of of the mythology that was created in the novels. There were a ton of novels. Star Trek did it as well, and that's they were able yeah. to continue to develop lots of different movies for Star Trek as well because they had these expanded universes. And you got to think that you know Jurassic Park is rooted in novelization. That there'd be a really interesting exercise to explore all kinds of different avenues. That you're well, there's, right. so, there's so much fun science. What what I you know what I was hoping for out of Dominion. Of course, they try to touch on some of it. Obviously. Um, Oh, what's what's the character's name? That's you know, it's a different actor in this film, but the one who's who's like the Tim Cookish oh, Apple CEO, Dodson, yeah, Dodson, yeah, because he he's the one trying to buy the shaving cream container from, uh, what's his face from Nedry, game, yeah. right from from Wayne Knight in the first movie, different actor for very nefarious reasons, <laughs> um, but I think, you know, they're you know, I get it, they're trying to go with modern tech, but I, I feel like. I just feel like it, the first book was re- rooted in so much science that when you read Jurassic Park, you could believe that this was real mm-hmm. because because it felt so detailed. And even if the science wasn't like, you know, Michael Crichton was just, you know, notorious 
having a medical background and everything that that the science just all felt so so logical that you're nodding your head being like i 100 percent believe that they could have brought dinosaurs back mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i just feel like in a novel form because in a movie sometimes that's very brilliant in the first movie where they use the mr dna yeah to summarize it for the audience in a, in a cartoon that takes up a minute of screen time but i i think I would enjoy reading some Jurassic Park sub story about about exactly that, you know. Yeah, but I, I did. I did like that there was almost like a, you know, they're not animals or dinosaurs, but like the idea of a, you know, there's activist groups and and somebody's trying to have a sanctuary for them. So like, which is just perfect for mankind because we, at this point, in the Jurassic Park world, the film world, they should have learned. Dinosaurs should not be on this planet anymore. Mm. This is a terrible idea that never gets any better. But human nature is so like, no, we can build a better cage system. We can, we can, we can all coexist. It's like we're not meant to coexist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think one of the shortcomings that got to me was that what was really special in the first book and really special in the first film was that the animals were unknown and they had behaviors and features that were not predicted. And, and they're surprising and therefore dangerous. And so the mm-hmm. intelligence of the raptors is one. I think in the book, they're very clear that uh, the Tyrannosaurus is like sensitive to the sun. It might get sunburns. Like that's one of the, the features that is a little bit unusual about them. Uh, that the visual acuity, I think, was surprising to them. Although I think they reneged it in the second book. But the idea that the Tyrannosaurus could not see you if you didn't move was a behavior that was built into the story to make it work. And, uh, and it worked well in the film and in the, in the book. Um, and the Dilophosaur spitting or being venomous was another surprise that uh, was a monkey wrench in the plan. So like they, they say in the book, they got to redirect the, the Jungle River ride because a Dilophosaurus can spit at you from like a bus length yeah. away or something like that. So we can't have that. And, uh, <laughs> and so I, I love that. And then when it came to subsequent films, instead of coming up with new and interesting, quirky behaviors that were um, surprising and fascinating... They just tried to find dinosaurs that themselves just looked weird and fascinating, and so they didn't actually build any interesting characters into the dinosaurs. They just That's kind a of really had them. Great point. And That's I thought, really great point. And I think there was so much more room when they do have a consultant or something like that saying, "Hey, who knows what these things were like?" They're like, "Maybe this thing eats fish," and you never saw yeah. that coming. Maybe it's in the water all the time. They put Dimetrodons in the water, which is a little different. <laughs> I don't know. I think there's and an interesting angle. I think they've missed is like, couldn't there have ever been a scenario in these movies where like a dinosaur, when, when a larger predator comes along, you know, that that there's got to be some dinosaur out there that might be protective of the humans or whatever it's around it from this larger predator, like mm-hmm. something that works alongside, you know, the the human characters in the movie. But I, th- I think you're right. I think it's a lot like the train. I, I there's a I had it. Uh, printed and framed on my wall once to remember the story comes first because it was i believe it was transformers two maybe three mm-hmm. but there was a a tweet from michael bay that said like just leaving industrial light and magic after you know a week of designing new transformers for the movie off to new york to start the script <laughs> okay and i was like so you just design all the robots you want in the movie and then you've force a way to fit them into a story versus building the best possible story mm-hmm. and then designing the characters off of what you've written. And I think that's exactly what you're getting to. Like what bigger, badder, scarier dinosaurs haven't we seen yet that we're going to put in this movie. And then it gets uh, uh, the mandate is, and I'm sure some of that comes down to like selling toys 
and merch and keeping interest and it's not just the same old dinosaurs. Um, I think what, what Jurassic World did that was a great moment and, 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 and nostalgia used in the right way was when the original T-Rex is still there at the park and mm. ends up like saving the day sort of at the yeah. end. Like that was a really nice moment. But uh, yeah, you're right. It's it's all about like what's cool and new without any sense of how that affects the story or could improve the story mm -hmm. or, or finding ways to introduce interesting aspects about dinosaurs that they weren't aware of since it still all is a very relatively new study. Yeah. And I think sequels, too, they have to kind of reprise what you loved about the first film, but they have to have something novel about them. There has to be something new that you haven't seen before. And I felt like the the Spinosaurus was special and new. They, they put it in the water, and they uh, they had, like, this that fire scene where it's, like, fighting the boat <laughs> is insane. Yeah. Um, the raptors being uh, able to communicate was a neat step up. You know, they did some novel things. And through all those movies, they did really interesting stuff, even with, like, less successful sequels like... Um, the 28 weeks later yep I, I mean it was a totally different type of movie than the 28 yep. days later yep. but they showed like um things that were only kind of mentioned in the first film that maybe they didn't have the budget for like the infection spreading through a crowd uh there's yep. an incredible scene where they decapitate people with a helicopter which is kind of neat <laughs> but i mean um but they did they did something new they expanded on what it, they had to show you something new i felt like the new dominion didn't have anything especially new in it it felt like you know I they just said talking about last time like my pitch is like take a take a bunch of boy scouts and like yellowstone mm -hmm. with with their their scout guide and be like oh when i when i was your age we camped over here and some park ranger says oh no that's closed because there were reforesting where we we need to grow it so it's, it's not open to the public mm -hmm. and the scout leader says nope you're getting the experience i had and they cross that barrier and they so they go off route they're they're out of cell phone connection Nobody knows where they are because they've gone off the path. Mm -hmm. And then because dinosaurs are in the wild, there's a T-Rex or some raptors and just make it a monster movie where it's like a small group of people fighting for survival. Kind of, you know, what was, is a good example of a great, it was a prequel, not a sequel, but uh prey that just came out the yeah. predator movie. Mm -hmm. What are we going to do? Let's set it in the 1700s with a Comanche, uh, you know, indigenous tribe in America fighting a predator because they've been around for hundreds of years have been visiting earth for far longer than we ever knew. Mm -hmm. Fantastic concept and pretty damn good execution, like really enjoyable movie. And it's just, it's, you're just taking a, a, a fresh protagonist and putting them in, in the situation. You still get all your nods to the original things that people love about the predator. You get a new design of the predator, some new tools and tricks that the predator has, but it doesn't, it doesn't, wreck if you hated prey it doesn't take anything away from the arnold schwarzenegger movie mm -hmm. um you know it's 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 just a standalone thing and i would love to see that in a jurassic park movie yeah yeah it's so hard to continuously raise the stakes and expand the impact that your story has after you've made nine movies <laughs> like what's left to put at risk that you haven't solved already but you're right. Well, I think we, you can. I think you can still call it Jurassic Park because you'd be in a park. You're mm -hmm. in Yellowstone National Park. It's still about these dinosaurs from the Jurassic period, so you don't have to call it Jurassic. Jurassic World was a was a brilliant touch for the name that, like, kind of like we have Disneyland, and then they built a bigger one called Disney World. Okay. Like that. That's a great little nod to the the way that marketing would have would have handled that to rebrand or make it seem bigger and better. And then again, that always that thing with Jurassic Park that's been brilliant is 
the logo of the park, the name of the park is the name of the movie and the, and the logo for the movie as well, which mm-hmm. is just consumerism at its best. You know, I've, I've, I've always loved that. And those t-shirts all got a, you can see them all over the place. I'm not sure. I guess you just get them at a box store, but yeah, there's all kinds of Jurassic Park t-shirts there, now. There's, there's a Jeep driving around Windsor, Ontario, Canada. That's like, it's still like what the, whatever they use the 93 Ford Explorer or whatever, whatever, whatever that vehicle was. Okay. But somebody's decked out. It's got Jurassic Park logos on the side doors. I see, I would see a couple in Los Angeles like that all the time. So yeah. it, it's not, I mean, obviously not, it's an iconic vehicle that's sort of like, um, you know, camo, camo beige and, and, and red Jeep. And and that was like I feel like that's when Jeep was rebranding in the in the nineties and and that's a great looking Jeep that's mm-hmm. a really fun vehicle if you're gonna have a Jeep, not as iconic as say, the DeLorean or the Ghostbusters you know like Ecto One, Batmobile <laughs> but still if you showed that Jeep to anybody yeah. you'd be like oh I know exactly what that is you know? I was just looking at a few clips of people climbing in and out of the the Land Cruisers, and they are huge, like the amount of space. They must have been custom designed. The amount of space in the back seat for two adults and a third to like wiggle around and climb, mm-hmm. it was a big interior. Like there was a, I don't know if they were made special or what happened there, but there was a ton of room inside those Land Cruisers. I was astonished. And you know what? That's good because I don't know how to get the cameras in there to like get your good shots and stuff like that. But um, it was a big vehicle. I was surprised to, to see how much space like was between the, um... them. Or actors are like, small, one or the other. I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if you watch on YouTube. There's a channel that I follow called uh, Co- uh, Corridor Crew. They're, they're visual effects guys. Okay. And they do a lot of like uh, reviewing best and worst and special effects once a week. But sometimes they create their own. And there's there's an episode where they use their sort of small company independent guys to recreate the T Rex attack using using models and miniatures to recreate the the. Uh, the the attack outside of the, the first one where they encounter the t-rex at the at the pen in the rain it's really it's really interesting to watch them with like today's technology try to match what only ilm could have done in in 1993 using mm-hmm. like commercial software and stuff so uh, and i and i love how much i mean i am also a massive weird al fan i can't wait for that movie to come yeah, out that'd be something. but the um his jurassic park song the parody of MacArthur park and mm-hmm. They did that stop motion claymation music video for it that was uh you know they i think they only had two days to do it or something and, and got it done but yeah jurassic park was was everywhere in the in the zeitgeist oh yeah yeah speaking of special effects i was um i was hearing there's the the scene in die hard where the explosion comes up the elevator shaft i yeah. heard that they had to do some incredibly difficult things to get that to work uh for the shot like i heard yeah so in terms of like trying to recreate or understand how some of these practical effects are produced um in the before days (laughs) it's just fascinating well there's a great it's interesting too because i don't know if you've had a chance to watch uh the disney plus six-part series light and magic yeah not yet but i should yeah it's uh you know it's the whole history of industrial light and magic from from the birth of, of of the scrappy ragtag team that did the original star wars all the way through but like you know i i feel like i've, I've watched the making of jurassic park a million times mm-hmm. i know who steven spaz williams is that invented the t-rex model run that that, that blew everyone's mind phil Tippett, you know famously being told like you know i'm out of a job don't you mean extinct <laughs> like they, they made it into the movie all of that but this 
documentary, there's still more chapters and layers to it when they actually get all of the individual interviews with people from ILM to talk about how it came to be of like, he knew that Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall and Spielberg would walk in this like door and entrance. So he put a TV, strategically placed a TV because they were told, stop with this animation thing. We're doing it stop motion. The decision has been made. And just like a rebel put the TV with the, with the skeletal cycle, the run cycle he had computer animated. So he knew that they would see it in the office and be like, what is this? Mm. You know? And they talk about the moment that they all sat in a cinema, even like, even, even like people who were just uh, office managers for industrial light magic that weren't, that weren't special effects people. They talk about sitting in the screening room when they first showed the T-Rex with the, with the skin on it and that everything was, everything was good. Uh, they, they talk about how just, like they'll never forget like that moment in time is, is for them. They're like, everything changed in special effects immediately. And I knew I was witnessing history when I watched this, this piece of film running. Mm, that's so fascinating. Pretty incredible. So it's just, it's always interesting to me that 30 years later, there's still new, it already like got that Beatles documentary came out to get back. <laughs> you know, I'm going to be 50 something years later and there's still new information and new footage we haven't seen before. And, um, you know, you get episodes like uh, "How Did This Get Made?" Or not, not "How Did This Get Made." That's the, the comedy podcast. Uh, the movies that made us on mm. Netflix with Jurassic Park. And, and, and again, I've heard all these stories. I've read all the books. I had the making of Jurassic Park. You know, like like coffee table book growing up. Uh, I watched. I bought the separate VHS of the making of Jurassic Park with the half hour featurette before DVDs were a thing. I, and you think you know it all, but there's just always always new angles and new stories to it. So uh, speaking of like practical effects in ILM, um, for a phrase, we call them puppets, but I mean, the, the, the animatronics kind of get a mature name instead of just calling them puppets. But uh, working with, with animatronics or, or puppets must be an entirely different challenge. Uh, is that anything that you've worked with before? Have you put puppets into anything yet? You know, we, we made a movie called The Scare House that was set inside of Windsor's uh, like, like Halloween attraction called Scare House Windsor. And I... You know, I do the marketing videos for them. My my one of my dear friends, Sean Lippert and, and Dario Salvaggi own it. Uh, so I, I help create their marketing videos. And we're, I'm actually shooting a documentary TV series about what it's like to own and operate a haunted house as a business. <laughs> so I, I say all that because they have they have some hydraulic uh, scares in there. There's some sort of a just like kind of like a monster head that, that pops out of a hole at one point with the jaws and but somebody it's just connected to almost like like bicycle handles okay and, and just some somebody behind the scenes in the dark is physically pushing that out at you and when they twist one handle the the jaws are opening and when they twist the other one it's got the the sound effects for the voice and the the lights and the eyes so like very basic kind of stuff but you mm -hmm. know so in terms of trying to film that and make it look like a good scare. It's just learning how to puppeteer a little bit. I, I had a, a puppet music video that I wanted to do. It's still an idea that I love. I just haven't found the right band to, to execute it with. But yeah, not not a lot of puppet work in, on my resume. <laughs> well, being a fan of um, things like, like Star Wars, that mm -hmm. like getting Yoda to perform emotional moments and taking like important beats is a mm -hmm. masterclass in making that goofy puppet um, mean something. Like, because that could have been a disaster, you know, especially when you hire the team behind the Muppets to do it, yeah. right? But like Yoda today, a nineteen, they shot that in seventy nine, released in eighty. Yoda today, 
watching that movie still looks as lifelike as as you know when I, when I was whatever age old when I mm-hmm. watched that movie. You you when you're a kid everything because even like you know you watch Labyrinth and as a kid you're like wow you watch <laughs> it now you're like some of these are clearly puppets on rods you know, they, don't, they don't have the same sort of same sort of thing or even in the Force Awakens and some of the later movies like the the mouth or God the the prequels of the the Nemodians the uh, the Trade Federation people the, the mouths just for all the advancements in technology the mouths do not match the actors mm. it's so phony but Yoda. You're right. Is so emotional, so much gravitas to that performance, and you know you got one person on a radio control working his eyes, and then you've got <laughs> Frank Oz doing the hand movement to the voice, and it's it's phenomenal work to make that come. And I think that's really the the magic of cinema, right? Is when you you know that that's not real, but especially practically, people were able to. Or the Jabba the Hutt puppet, where you've got three guys inside him, <laughs> plus people controlling the eyes, plus people controlling other things, and just that—it's almost like a like a dance choreography team at that point, right? Where everybody's got to kind of do their part to to make it all come to life, and if one of them's even off a little bit, it's just gonna, the illusion is, is broken. <laughs> I think I'm gonna butcher this story, but I think when Dominion was coming out, there was a bunch of um, shows specials maybe that had the cast chatting about their experiences in the past and on the new film Mm. and there was one part where sam neill was discussing how when he first approached the sick triceratops that Mm. he was moved by it as well that it was like enough you know a convincing uh puppet that it really surprised him and then they get up close to it and they look at it and they said then five guys climbed out its butt (laughs) 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 and you're right it destroys the illusion real quick but uh um, <laughs> the puppets are something, they, and uh, and that scene in the film with the Triceratops is is so special that uh, it's really your first chance to get up close to a to one of the animals. So they have to be really convincing, and it's something you know you can't do. I don't think you could have done it with CGI because interacting with it is a real gift. Maybe in these days, uh, in in yeah, movie they making, would have, they would have like well, the, especially the scene where, where where he lays on its belly mm-hmm. and it breathes. He's just fascinated to like feel the heart, you know, the heartbeat and the living living dinosaur you know you would have had to have like a blue screen or a green screen almost like like air sack or something yeah. somebody's like you you could do it but it doesn't look as good as like the, the way the scaling the sunlight's hitting the scaling and just every, every you yeah. just know that everything's tactile and and part of it you know or, or the way that you know sometimes it's a combo thing where they could have built the belly and the airbag behind it like practical and then the rest of the dinosaur could have been cg around mm-hmm. just just that belly piece but yeah, that that's a scene where, and just the fact that this animal's in pain, and you feel for it, and, and you you just get that connection that all living creatures have the ability to to look out for one another and take care of each other. Mm-hmm. It, it's such, you're right, like it's such a great because because correct me if I'm wrong, but like in in the book and and the like they've they've seen you know the brontosaurus from afar, mm-hmm. which is that amazing you know co- coming out of the jeep and the sunglasses coming off and the Spielberg mouth open thing that he does in every movie, <laughs> uh, the the wonder the wonderment eyes. Um, there's, it's it's it is that Triceratops is the first time they they see another dinosaur and actually get to touch a dinosaur. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think uh, and Sam Neill had another little tidbit. He says when he climbs up the the roof of the the, the jeep. He takes his sunglasses off to look at the dinosaur, and he goes, which was stupid, but I had to do something. But you don't yeah, take your sunglasses yeah. off to see it better. <laughs> but, uh, and then I think he said, Laura Dern said afterwards, yeah, I just copied what you did. 
Uh, well, I, I think it's I think it's the like you can see it, but when you see something like that, you really want to see it with your own eyes. That's right. Like that expression, right? Yeah. Well, I think I thought it was a convincing performance. I didn't see a problem with it, but he, in the back of his head, it always bothered him that <laughs> that it didn't make sense to him to take your glasses off to see it better. They t- which something I've never noticed, but they talk about his accent changing in that movie and having him like drop his American accent that he started, mm-hmm. and I, I've never once felt that there's two different mm-hmm. tones to his voice or, or accent. So, may, but again, maybe I need to watch it again and, and focus on that and see if I see if I spot it. I think it was good. It's certainly. I know that there's a great tradition now in getting um, very British actors to portray Southern accents, Southern American yeah. accents. And uh, I'm glad that I don't know. I was convinced with his performance. I didn't. I, his voice kind of does have a maybe it's something theatrical, you know, about it. There's something mm-hmm. that kind of rolls around in the lower register in his performance, which may be him fighting back that that uh, New Zealand uh, whatever you call that accent. But listen, it's a, it's an Oscar worthy accent in comparison <laughs> to say Kevin Costner and Robin Hood and Prince of Thieves or. God bless him, but Keanu Reeves and uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Okay, to do a British accent. <laughs> that was a big ask that somebody should have rethought. Yeah. Yes. In in choosing your thespians, you know, it must be wise. Oh, <laughs> uh, tell me, Lord Dracula, why, why exactly does, do you want to have dinner with the Countess? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> do you consider motion capture suits puppets? Would they count? It, it's kind of like it's human. It's human puppets in a sense, right? Well, there's always um, a human. What control. do you think about? I guess the best the best example of that would be like the the apes in Planet of the Apes, yeah. right? Where they're did do they do they do any human performance capture for the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park? Like I think part? the raptors in Jurassic Park three may may have been. I don't. So they probably would have put people on like some kind of stilts that gave them the leg position and, and just try that. Or maybe Jurassic World. I think I saw something like that, but I maybe oh. not Jurassic Park three. I think Jurassic Park three. I've seen people in costumes where they're like walking on stilts to give you like the feet. So like this guy's in this weird chassis as he's walking around to get the feet walking on the ground. It. I mean, it, it's puppeteering to a degree. You're yeah. just you're. It's a human using their body in different ways to create a almost like a digital puppet that's that's uh can then be further manipulated with sort of invisible strings inside the computer i i always laugh at the uh hobbit desolation of smog that footage of benedict cumberbatch like rolling around on the floor and like motion capturing the dragon i'm like dude they can animate a dragon they don't need they need your face capture yes maybe they don't need you slithering around the floor and they're expending you know they're ten thousand dollar motion capture suit to to animate a dragon there. and i and i often laugh i'm just like i bet you he only did that because the behind the scenes camera was there that day but for the rest of the time he's just like sat in a chair perfectly framed with his with his sensors on his face you know you look at the side by sides of like andy circus as Gollum when they when they do the side by sides or 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 the apes and planet of the apes uh prequels just phenomenal phenomenal like motion capture work and you can see how it becomes the performance yeah yeah and everyone's always like they have to have a motion capture oscar category and i'm like not yet because <laughs> even though they're they're capturing all that detail the animators are still mm-hmm. vastly tweaking and perfecting and, and putting their own spin on it so it's not it's not a full 
motion capture yet. My my wife her acting careers, she was in Far Cry Five playing a character. Oh, right on. And like obviously the the video game is a little more kind of stilted and everything, but it's still really interesting that like actors are playing the characters in video games and getting to do the motion capture for it. Yeah, I've seen some of the behind the scenes stuff on like uh, Grand Theft Auto Five, and I was like, wow, I'm really blown away that like they got legit actors to f- record all of that stuff because that's no short gig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, our our friend Kimberly Sue Murray is a, a, another Toronto-based actor. Uh, she was in our film Scarehouse, but she's Gamora in the Guardians of the Galaxy video game that came out last year too, or earlier this year, whenever it was. But yeah, just phenomenal time with. And video games are interesting too because it's there's so much more to do than a than a traditional film script because mm-hmm. they're some of those scripts are hundreds and hundreds of pages long yeah. because of all the variations and branches of storytelling in, in video games. So. Did I see you just had an announcement that uh, one of your films just got put into a new festival, got accepted into a festival? Yeah, there's a film that I directed and edited called Artifice. It's a, uh, a collective of eight actors that all star in the film. They, you know, they're they're working actors in Toronto, and 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 the real trick in the last ten years has become if you want to accelerate your career, write and produce your own stuff. Like mm-hmm. just keep creating your own work instead of waiting for casting directors uh, to come to you. Uh, so they wrote it together. They specifically that they could all act in it and produce it, and uh, you know, graciously sought me out to see if I'd be interested in directing. And uh, you know, we finished it a while ago, but kind of been waiting. Same same thing as like, not not as important as the multi million dollar uh, you know Hollywood feature, but kind of waiting till the pandemic had subsided mm-hmm. and we could go to theaters and and not have to do virtual festivals. It's going to be premiering in Chatham at the Chatham Kent International Film Festival, and then starts its festival run from there and then i'll be in london ontario at the forest city film festival around the 20th of october i actually have three other short films that are all playing at that festival wow. trifecta i was like cool yeah definitely gotta go so things things have opened up now you don't have to like cross-border traffic isn't so i mean for the last few I've years only, must have been such a problem yeah i've only i've only sparingly been across the border but i and i've you know knock on wood i've, I've had a handful of flights, but haven't suffered the, uh, you know, the atrocities of uh, <laughs> Pearson Airport in Toronto that that the rest of the globe is complaining about. Not mm-hmm. yet. So, but like getting down to LA, have you been able to do that? Yeah, I was there in June. Right. On. Uh, I was on. I was on the jury for uh, Dances with Film Festival, and ironically, I had to go all the way back to LA to catch COVID because I <laughs> I got COVID while I was there and spent the majority of my trip uh, isolated in the hotel room. <sighs> That's just rotten. No, I, you know, I, I had a, a pretty relaxed perspective on things. It didn't kill me. It's killed other people. Mm-hmm. Whatever, you know, if I had to sit in a hotel for seven days and binge a TV show, I'm fine. Yeah. You know, I, I can handle that. I got through two seasons of Agents, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. when I got it. <laughs> just... <laughs> Well then, there you go. Here's the tie-in, and you then you probably saw an episode with actor Ryan Powers guest starring, who is the lead actor and writer of one of the shorts playing in London called In These Parts. Oh, right there on. There you go. Okay. He was just on. He was just on She-Hulk last week too. So. Yeah. Okay, I would recognize him then. Maybe. I'm sure. Did you watch She-Hulk? I just uh, caught up on that this weekend. Yeah. So he he plays the the. Um, the douchebag date that she goes on through the, through the app. The okay. She's bragging about how he was uh, banned from Winnipeg, Canada. And, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's too funny. That's it. Hope he doesn't get typecast. 
Not that there isn't no, a shortage like, of roles. What's interesting about Ryan is like I, you know, Ryan, you know, was also my neighbor in Los Angeles, and the short film that we made together was just out of like wanting to work together and create. But I, I can honestly say, each time I've seen a few of his previous uh, short films, and he, he he produced and wrote and started in a web series, uh, and everything I've ever seen him in, like like really is completely different. Mm -hmm. like I, cool. I'm, I'm constantly surprised. Even even watching She Hulk, I was like completely different side of Ryan's acting I hadn't seen before, which is uh which is fun, especially when you know people in real life and then you get to see their their body of acting work and like, man, they're good actors because uh -huh. you just know it's not who they are in real life. Yeah. That's really cool. Well I know that um we just had in and by we I mean I, I guess I live close yeah. enough to Toronto that the the Toronto International Film Festival just wrapped up and it's been interesting mm -hmm. to see what kind of things get a buzz coming out of it. Like there has to be a story that day about what it, what's going on. Yeah. And um, and there's been a lot of interest. So did you hear about the People's Joker? I I heard that they tried to pull it but then it did screen. I so they had I obviously they had some licensing issues <laughs> where they didn't uh, make this little film with the the blessings of of um, DC Comics or whomever owns the you know the license for oh it. it's about the Joker so it's kind of I don't know it's, it's um from what I read I think it's a story of somebody coming to terms with their uh, identity as a as, as a trans person set against the motif of everything is like in Gotham and okay they are I don't know exactly how it plays out but yeah they are the Joker <laughs> like the whole deal so I, purple I jacket green hair. I thought it was just the distributor had decided to not show it there, because sometimes they don't they don't want early reviews before they put a movie out, or mm -hmm. or they have different plans for it where a festival premiere they feel would would alter their marketing approach. But mm -hmm. I'll I'll have to I'll have to look into that more. I I, def, I definitely caught the headlines and, and thought I understood it. Um, yeah, there's a there's a few um, few friends films were playing there this year. Uh, the End of Sex, uh, written by Jonas uh, Chernick, that I'm excited to see because that's playing at London at the festival I'm at, so I'm okay. gonna catch it there. And um, see, and and then Spielberg took took audience yes. audience choice with um, audience favorite with uh, the Fablemans, which is again I don't know much about it, but it's like loosely inspired by his own life of growing up and falling in love with cinema. Okay, that'd be a cool. And one. people people seem to love it and gave it glowing reviews and. Um, I don't think we've really had like a schmaltzy Spielberg, you know, kid kid driven movie in in some time. I know we did, you know, he did make the big friendly giants, but uh, oof, oof, oof. <laughs> uh, and and obviously the the Tintin movie, which I enjoyed that motion capture movie, but mm -hmm. uh, um, yeah, it would be nice to see him back. Sort of, I feel like doing what Spielberg does best. Yeah, that's cool. And I know that, um, I guess Brendan Fraser is in something called The Whale, which I don't know much about, but he got a ton of buzz for, for that. And it, like, I don't know if he's sick or what, but like, people were like, um, really emotional about Brendan Fraser, <laughs> which, is, I mean, he's a good dude, but <laughs> people were really gushing there, there about him. There was, um, somebody was just telling me the other day a story about him that, like, you know, somebody who was the president of the Golden Globes at the time, mm -hmm. like, 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 had grabbed him either in the crotch or grabbed his butt. And it just, he asked for an apology and the person wouldn't give him an apology. 
And then he was never invited back to the Golden Globes. Okay. And it was sort of a thing where, you know, there's all these Weinstein, Harvey Weinstein obviously being the the head of that that devil community of of, of abuse of power. But essentially he kind of like got pushed out of Hollywood. Okay. By this one person, this one incident. So, you know, he's sort of like, you know, he... He's, he's had troubled relationships. He put on a lot of weight. He didn't work much. So I think this is like, this is like his John Travolta comeback moment. Okay. And I think people, I think it's one of those things where people are like, wow, his performance is so outstanding in, mm-hmm. in this movie because it's the Darren Aronofsky movie, right? I believe so, yeah. Um, and Sadie Sink is in it. I recently had a chance to edit, uh, uh, co-edit a film that she she's in um, called Dear Zoe. But yeah, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. I, I so I, I think it's about the performance. I hope. I hope he's not sick. Yeah. Well, maybe there's that that uh, underlying heroism that people are appreciating as well. That he stood up for something that was bigger than him, yeah, and yeah. maybe and he didn't he didn't win. But uh, I think maybe there's um. Standing yeah, up for your, it's almost some like credit not, to him. Not, yeah. that, not that not that acting is as as physical sometimes as say. UFC or boxing or any sports thing, but everybody loves a comeback story, right? Yeah, like yeah. there's, you know, like to, to kind of get kicked kicked in the face and knocked down and and or you know battle any kind of addiction or anything and, and come back. It, it's something that Hollywood and the press and, and audience seem to appreciate. But mm-hmm. he looks transformative in that fat suit in that movie, so I'm I'm excited to. I mean, Aronofsky's just one of those guys where whatever he makes, I'll I'll watch because he you know. Even even at what I feel is his worst movie, is generally far more interesting than than most of the the movies that come out. If uh, if Brendan Fraser could be anybody in any movie of Jurassic Park, where would you have put him? Oh man, because he'd Good be question. fun. He'd be because he does physical. He, do, he runs around. He's goofy. Uh, he doesn't Honestly, take things probably, too seriously. Probably like uh, like. Maybe Chris Pratt's character in Jurassic World. Yeah, you know, like could have could have had that same same thing. He could have done yeah, the I'm Vince Vaughn to... one easy. I think he could have been yeah, Nick Van Owen or whatever. You're his right because that, that, that that's '97. So Brendan Fraser broke out in like '92 with School Ties. Well, in Ceno Man in '92. Yeah, well, he could have been in Ceno Man too, and they could have cloned a, a caveman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> then, you could have had him. You could have just been in the. He's on the exhibit. Yeah, just picking berries. Doug. There you go. Encino <laughs> Man versus the dinosaurs of Jurassic Park. Oh, he could have been there. Movie. Yeah, that would have been the per- perfect trope of getting everything wrong, putting cavemen and dinosaurs back together. And he's got to save Polly Shore because he, he, he bought the <laughs> wrong ticket and wandered to the wrong part of the park. Um, I Yeah, because uh, what, what was his big break after that? So he does, he does school ties in 92. I forget what Brian Encino Man was big. Encino um, Man was... Was huge. Yeah. Oh, there was like blast from the past around the same time with the one with Christopher Walken, where they're they're in the um, yeah the bomb shelter since the sixties and come up and don't realize that bomb never went off. Well, he was huge in he was uh, in the Mummies, wasn't he? Or at least one the of them. Mu- duh, of course, yeah. Nineteen ninety nine, the Mummy. Okay. Um, yeah, that was that was his big yeah. And there you go. Maybe that's where I'm I'm relaying like the. The adventurer, you can Chris picture Brad him doing kind it, yeah. Kind of thing, yeah, because that was very Indiana Jones esque, and I yeah, think... some, somewhere in there, he'd he'd have to be an outdoorsman. He wouldn't he wouldn't be Ian Malcolm. He wouldn't be Sam Neill. Like, and not to say that his acting couldn't do those things. I mm-hmm. just I 
you know, knowing the things he's done, he'd he fit more in that kind of adventurer role. You know what? He is in Looney Tunes Back in Action, which one of my kids watches too much. And he and I think it's Jenna Elfman are very good in it. <laughs> but I mean, they got to do the whole Who Framed Roger Rabbit acting against Looney Tunes. He, he, but... he was in Paul Haggis's Crash as well, wasn't he? Was he? Brendan in... Fraser? Is that I the. He was in like 2005 or whenever that movie came out. Okay. I'm trying to picture. Yeah, the whale I want to see. I'm, I'm, I'm more and more these days. I try to like tomorrow night. I'm going to buy a ticket to. There's a movie out in the cinemas called The Barbarian, mm-hmm. or bar, or just Barbarian. All I've heard is from like six friends are like they loved it. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it's about. I don't know who's in it. I don't know who made it. I'm going to just blindly go in. I try to do that more. I try to watch very okay. few trailers, uh, or read too much about things, or read reviews in advance. I, I just want to be surprise which is so rare these days because it's, it's impossible to right avoid movie news with with the internet yeah barbarian is a promoted tweet that i keep seeing <laughs> now i don't know what maybe, it's about maybe, maybe that's what sold me on it too maybe <laughs> i just keep seeing it you know that'd be cool in terms of marketing a film like there's a lot more to it and when you're making your own projects and stuff like that it has to be a tremendous amount of effort to have to do the fundraising for yourself and do your own mm-hmm. writing and then do your own casting and do your own Directing and, and storyboards and all the ideas like and and then the marketing afterwards. How do you how do you? What are some of the strategies that have worked for you, especially on a like a smaller budget than than uh, being able to yeah. do like a press junket? It's funny. I actually I actually teach uh, like a workshop at that I usually travel to film festivals for uh, called "If You Build It, They Won't Come." <laughs> sort of paraphrasing the the famous "Feel the Dream" quote. You I, and I understand it. You know, you most people are making their first movie for like. 25,000, 50,000, maybe 100,000. And all of that money is like, we are going to barely cross the finish line to finish the mm-hmm. product. And then, you know, you might sign a distribution deal. Um, the distribution side of filmmaking is, is it, it's evil. There's no, there's no kind of work <laughs> for it. There's no I'm way to stop the blow. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot, of, a lot of distributors in the indie space are over-promising. Oh, we're going to get it out here on Netflix and we'll get you an entertainment weekly. Mm-hmm. And they don't have to live up to any of that. They just get to sell you all that so you sign the contract. And generally speaking, they might get you a couple reviews. They might get you one article on some like, you know, scottsmovietalk.com, some website you've never heard of, mm-hmm. which is all good. There's no such thing as bad press. But it's a lot of filmmakers are left hanging. The product comes out. And then there's only so much precious time that you can build back or try to get on there. So I, I've, I've been teaching this course about how to how to do some zero budget marketing or very low budget marketing. Mm-hmm. And I, there, it's it's a it's a bunch of stuff. But I've just I, I've always had a bit of a, a marketing side to my brain. So like for Scarehouse, for example, when we had our world premiere, which was here in Windsor, uh, we sold just shy of a thousand tickets. Uh, we were on five screens at, at one time in a multiplex. But that night, the the cast of uh, of eight actresses that were in the film, we they were all you know they're all dolled up, ready to go to their red carpet premiere. And we said, hey, there's a limo coming. We're gonna go do some press interviews, and and then we'll come back to the to the premiere. And we drove them to the haunted house where we shot the movie, which was open <laughs> for the Halloween season at the time. And said everyone has to go through this, preferably alone, and you don't get to go to the premiere unless you go. So we. <laughs> and then we had infrared camera operators inside there to film. Oh, cool! Um, could the cast of the scare house survive a haunted house? And and you know bleep out all the swearing. And, and we teamed up with a, a YouTube channel to, that had a, a much larger viewership that that premiered that prank video. 
and you know we've always put the soundtracks out and and we make behind the scenes videos and uh podcasts podcasts nowadays the last five years like i reach out to every indie filmmaking podcast i can find and Mm -hmm. say hey if i'd ever fit to be a guest would love to talk about the movie reaching out to um you know in the letterbox sort of community and, and twitter reviewers i think it's it's just it's just all very basic and it's it's very boring. It's very, <laughs> it's a lot of follow-up emails and things. It's just, it's just having the tenacity yeah. to make sure that people are going to see your movie. And for me, I feel like I have to know that I didn't leave anything on the table. I tried everything that I could that cost nothing or a low amount of money, social media, obviously. But I think a lot of people fall into the trap of like, Oh, I posted about it twice on my Facebook. Everyone knows this movie is out there. It's like, mm-hmm. no, it's not, not the way it goes. So it's just, it's just a game of sort of, Every, everything that you can do but for me it's the the blessing of being my own editor is i can edit new commercials i can edit new trailers i can take the behind the scenes footage and get a quick little interview with the cast or the crew and, and, and tell a little story and then just plug that into where wherever it makes sense out there mm-hmm. if you can offer a, a website hey we've got an exclusive clip from the movie there's a better chance of them featuring your indie movie than you know right on so yeah. you do the own editing too. That's amazing stuff. We were just um, watching Tommy Boy, and the pacing was so fast. We got through the first act and getting into the, the cut, did you know direction of things, and I was like, wow, I don't remember this movie moving so quickly. He gets he graduates, he gets to work, he get uh, gets his first office. He they tell thirteen jokes. It was unbelievable how fast that movie moved because it was such a goofy film. But your editing yeah. makes a big difference. You mentioned that the, the Chatham Kent Film Fest Festival yeah. is uh, you, you, so you're nominated for editing, which is pretty like that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. I uh, not all not all festivals have awards. Not all festivals tell you like the nominations in advance. Mm-hmm. So that's you know always always flattered. This movie in particular is actually it's like an anthology inside of a short. It's five different stories about this this technology company each, each story is another 10 years into the future of where this sort of app is is leading us almost in a black mirror-esque way where it's okay not not good <laughs> the future is not good in a lot of ways with tech um but we shot it it was planned to be it would be like story one for five minutes story two very linear but in editing i ended up uh you know convincing and discussing with the producer saying i think there's a way to like intermingle these five stories in the edit and be constantly cutting back and forth between them and that's the way we we ended up presenting the movie and ultimately uh falling in love with it so uh being nominated to edit that versus anything else i'm happy about because the editing in this one truly reshaped the story and and is as integral to my directed the editing in this is is synonymous with my directing because i was really directing the edit to kind of reshape the story mm-hmm. and they don't know that like, they don't get to know like they don't know that's what it was it's just it means so much to me that somebody looked at it and went oh the editing and this is really interesting that's that should cool. be considered yeah that's really really cool well, it looks like we're out of time all over again um <laughs> it happens yeah thanks so much for for coming back of course uh lots of luck in in chatham kent that's gonna be amazing uh, I'm sure we'll hear all about it. <laughs> and London. Yeah, listen, the Ontario festivals are great. It's it's, it's a great way to to meet a bunch of uh, regional filmmakers that that I you know hopefully can collaborate with some of them, and uh, and and just support regional festivals as all of these festivals grow. It's so exciting to to just 
be be a small a small part of it and, and mm-hmm. be a champion so that they get to continue and offer all of us indie filmmakers a, a, a voice and a, and a place to screen our movies. Well, thank you so much again. I really, really appreciate you having uh, come back and sharing all your passion about the movies. Like, and... <laughs> like I said, this is a movie and a story. It's one of my all-time favorites. Could chat about it forever, you know? Right on. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> well, thanks again. Let's get into our chapter for today. This week's text is Stegosaur, spanning from pages 154 to 157. In a synopsis, the tour continues to the Stegosaurus paddock, where the vet is tending to a sick Stego, which Grant rushes to inspect. The Stegos are, quote, always getting sick, but Sattler cracks the case. While consuming gizzard stones, the Stegos were inadvertently also consuming toxic berries, explaining why there is no trace of the West Indian lilac bushes being eaten, nor in the Stego spores. Because it's not the plants, it's the berries. They find this evidence in a discarded pile of gizzard stones, as well as something else even more shocking. <laughs> Meanwhile, Gennaro quizzes Malcolm on why Chaos Theory predicts that Jurassic Park is unsafe for people, or put differently, will have, quote, very large consequences for human life. Animal welfare and animal containment are predicted to fail at Jurassic Park, and no sooner has he said that, Grant and Ellie reveal their consequential discovery, a raptor eggshell, proving that dinosaurs are breeding in Jurassic Park. Characters, Ellie Sattler. Ellie speaks with Tim when he starts asking questions on page 154, and she recognizes the, quote, peculiar odor like rotting fish on 155, and relates with Lex over the ill stego. She identifies the tongue blisters as microvesicles, just like in the movie. She picks up blisters with her fingernail, revealing a clear liquid. She sets her mind to diagnosing what's causing the stegosaur illness. Their constant foraging precludes the source of illness from their diet, she hypothesizes. She calls the illness, quote, poisoning on 155, that they'd constantly be sick if they were eating a toxic plant, she surmises. She spots that the pupils are dilated, not constricted, as would be expected from the tranquilizer, a pharmacological effect. Sattler identifies the toxic West Indian lilac bushes and suspects it may be the poisonous culprit on 156. Sattler reveals all the stegosaur symptoms are consistent with meliotoxicity, stupor, blistering of the mucous membranes, and pupillary dilation, but the plants show no sign of being eaten. Quote, none at all, on page 156. Sattler walks further into the field to investigate, She wonders if the berries, though terribly bitter, could be what the stegosaurs are eating. What with the plants showing no signs of being eaten, though? Why would the stegos eat them? She misidentifies the gizzard stones as weathered rocks from the surf on page 157, but realizes what they are while talking to Grant. Ian Malcolm. Malcolm thinks the stegosaur is, quote, funny looking on 154. He discusses his predictions with Gennaro on 158, and he continues to be the doomsayer, arguing that the mathematics lead to the conclusion, quote, very large consequences for human life. He deflects from his personality and ego, instead suggesting that he did the math and the outcome is good, or rather the predictions from the math are viable. You can take them to the bank. But it's easy to dislike Malcolm. He quickly expands conversations beyond the realm of comprehension, and while he makes the effort to be relatable, he's constantly controlling conversations as the gatekeeper of information. It's easy to see why he's disliked. He evokes Godel, Heisenberg, Newton, and John Van Neumann, recapping the history of science to make his argument, which shows how this concept of chaos theory is turning the scientific field on its ear, but also commands much from his audience. Quote, it's astonishing how few people care to hear it, Malcolm says. Quote, I gave all this information to Hammond long before he broke ground on this place. You're going to engineer a bunch of prehistoric animals and set them up on an island? Fine. Lovely dream. Charming. But it won't go as planned. It is inherently unpredictable, just as the weather is, he says on 159. Malcolm predicted specific areas where deviations would occur. The fitness of the animals to to the environment was one area, thus predicting the stegosaurs' routine illness. 
The ability of the park to control the spread of life forms was another. And here we get one of Malcolm's famous lines. Broadly speaking, the ability of the park to control the spread of life forms. Because the history of evolution is that life escapes all barriers. Life breaks free. Life expands to new territories, painfully, perhaps even dangerously, but uh, life finds a way. Malcolm shakes his head. I don't mean to be philosophical, but uh, there it is. Just like in the film, right? Dr. Harding. He carries a flashlight to inspect the Stego's mouth, and we see on 155. He has a difficult time with the Stegos. They're always getting sick. Well-versed in the illness's symptoms and the stegosaur feeding patterns, uh, Dr. Harding expects the effects of the tranquilizer to be meiotic pupillary constrictions, but instead the pupils are dilated. I'll be damned, he says, identifying the pharmacological effect. Spielberg made sure Dr. Harding said, I'll be damned in the movie, too. Gotta represent Dr. Harding on the screen, eh? Harding knows the West Indian lilac is toxic, but attests that the animals don't eat it. He's watched the animals feeding the, and inspected their spores. The stegosaurs, quote, never eat the lilac bushes. He reiterates, quote, they don't eat it. Harding also refutes that the eggshell is a dinosaur egg, because he believes, nay, he knows that, quote, the dinosaurs can't breed, he says in 160. Denying the egg suggests that Harding refutes ideas and observations that don't jive with his work, which is probably explaining how it is that he's overlooked so many things in the park, because there are a load of things that he should have noticed. Ed Regis. Regis continues to be the tour guide introducing the veterinarian, but not the dinosaurs, on page 154. He immediately uses the stegosaur's nickname, Stego. Lex. Lex is worried that the sickness may be contagious, on 154. Lex wrinkles her nose, complaining that the, the stegosaur is, quote, smelly, on 155. Usually a complainer, Lex opens up with Sattler, becoming more inquisitive about the dinosaur and its illness. She says, ugh, at the broken blisters, on 155. The stegosaur mystery bores Lex. After a while, she inquires if anyone wants to play, quote, a little pickle to entertain her. She plays pickle with Gennaro. She's too rough with Gennaro, though, and she calls him a wimp, on 158. She likes it when he puts a little something on his next throw, though. Dr. Grant. Without a word, he hurries from the Land Cruiser over to the Stegosaurus right away, on page 154, peering into its mouth. Grant calls Ellie to inspect the tongue with very fine silvery blisters. Grant catches up to Sattler during her investigation and agrees with her gizzard stone hypothesis on page 157, and he serves as a scientific sounding board providing a paleontological insight, if unspoken, into the text. While inspecting the discard pile, he spots something. Tim. Tim's inquisitive, wondering what the stego is sick with. He shushes Lex when she gets impatient and bored on 156 while supporting their scientific inquiry to the sick stego. Donald Gennaro. He plays pickle with Lex to help her pass the time during the stegosaur illness mystery on 157. She throws so hard it hurts his hand, and he asks her to be more gentle on 158. She calls him a wimp, and he is annoyed enough that he throws it back at her harder than he probably should have, resulting in a satisfying smack in the glove. Gennaro continues his investigation with Malcolm about his predictions for Jurassic Park's failure. Gennaro feels like Malcolm is a bit of a fraud, questioning, quote, is anything not predicted by your theory on 158? Feeling like Malcolm only predicts things after they've happened, it's nice to see that Malcolm does predict the next deviation beforehand. Their systems to control the animals will fail. Gennaro does well to consume great amounts of information through this chapter, and all through the book, really. If nothing else, he's a great researcher and asks, asks good questions and probably is a very good listener, too. Stegosaurus. The Stegosaurus is quiet and still, until Malcolm, quote, funny-looking on 154. It's 20 feet long, a huge, bulky body, and leathery vertical armor plates along its spine. 
The tail had dangerous-looking three-foot spikes, but the neck tapered to an absurdly small head with a stupid gaze, like a very dumb horse. It smells, we're told on 155. They eat five to six hundred pounds daily and are constant foragers. It has a range of about five square miles, on page 156, we're told, mostly north of where they're presently standing. They make a slow loop through their home range, feeding as they go, completing the loop in about a week. Stegosaurs swallow gizzard stones, which collect in a muscular pouch in the digestive tract, then help crush tough plant food before it reaches the stomach. Once worn smooth, the stones are regurgitated. The stegosaur is sick, so its armored plates droop slightly. It breathes slowly, laboriously, making a wet sound with each breath. It has a, quote, peculiar odor, like, quote, rotting fish. Its purple tongue droops limply from its mouth. Harding says the stegos are, quote, always getting sick. The blisters exude a clear liquid. Symptoms include imbalance, disorientation, labored breathing, and, a ma- and massive diarrhea. Happens every six weeks or so. Massive diarrhea? Massive. This expression has become so cliche. Can't there be some other adjective for it? Ex- explosive is a little too comedic. And even that's getting a little tired, too. Why not something alliterative, like devastating diarrhea, decentralized diarrhea, degenerate diarrhea? If it's recurring, it could be deja vu diarrhea, deleterious, but I like this one, deliquesce, meaning to become liquid. Deliquesce diarrhea, that's what I'm talking about. Let's get that to become cliche instead of massive, massive diarrhea, please. And that wraps up this week's Scat Chat on the Jurassic Park cast. Localities, the South Fields, due to volcanic activity at the southern end of Isla Nublar, plumes of steam rise from the ground, we're told on 154. An open meadow with scattered rocky outcrops, there are intermittent plumes of steam rising from the ground. The ground is rocky in many places, and the surf can be heard in the distance. There are berries among the rocks, and apparently it's about five square miles. Illusions, play a little pickle. Pickle is a schoolyard game where someone runs between two bases trying not to get tagged out. But I guess it also just means to, you know, play catch as well. Godel's Theorem. Kurt Godel is referred to as Godel. Godel's Theorem is invoked by Malcolm to explain chaos theory. The mathematics imply very large consequences for human life, greater than Godel's incompleteness theorems, which use mathematical logic concerning the limits of provability in formal axiomatic theories. Some things seem self-evidently true, but how can we use math to prove that they are true? Goodell's theorem suggests that finding the underpinning truth behind mathematics is impossible. First, no consistent system of truths, whose theorems can be listed by any effective procedure, is capable of proving all truths about arithmetic or natural numbers, apparently says the theorem. While a system can make true statements, the system itself cannot prove that the statements are true or that statements are unprovable. Therefore, the system cannot demonstrate its own consistency. Malcolm considers Godel's theorems a philosophical and academic problem, whereas chaos theory takes those uncertainties and applies them in the real world. Malcolm evokes Godel again to illustrate that science was once believed to offer a true vision for the world around us, and that with a scientific understanding it offers total control. However, Heisenberg's principle and Goodell's theorem both illustrate that this scientific, quote, truth is unattainable. Not only that the subatomic world is limited in what, what we can know, but also that the language of mathematics, the language of science, has an innate trueness to it, but that's flawed as well. Heisenberg's principle. Heisenberg is evoked by Malcolm as well on page 158, suggesting that chaos theory implies very large consequences for human life. Much larger than Heisenberg's principle, Malcolm feels this principle in academic philosophical... 
Malcolm feels this principle is academic, philosophical, whereas chaos theory concerns everyday life. Malcolm again invokes Heisenberg while elaborating on chaos theory. Science was hoped to give mankind control of the world, but Heisenberg's uncertainty principles set limits on what can be known about the subatomic world, that things cannot be known definitely, that things are always uncertain, and chaos theory proves that unpredictability is built into our daily lives. This refers to Werner Heisenberg's Werner Heisenberg's uncertainty principle in quantum mechanics, which sets a limit to the accuracy with which the values of certain pairs of physical quantities of a particle, such as position x and momentum p, can be predicted from initial conditions. We have John von Neumann, a mathematician, physicist, computer scientist, and polymath. He died at the young age of 54, but he's known for integrating pure and applied sciences, and is referenced in Jurassic Park as a mathematician who adopted computers to calculate the impacts of many variables in a formula for weather forecasting. Malcolm evokes von Neumann in his work on weather forecasting and predictability, and how science is based on the belief that, quote, if you knew enough, you could predict anything. We're told on 158. Sir Isaac Newton, heralded by Malcolm as one of the first scientists publishing works on mathematics in the 1660s, that all science beginning with Newton operated believing that, quote, if you knew enough, you could predict anything. Later, Malcolm suggests that since the days of Newton and Descartes, science has explicitly offered us the vision of total control and, quote, claimed the power to eventually control everything through its understanding of natural laws. Put all this together all those different allusions and, and Malcolm's <laughs> conversations, Malcolm is saying that A, science was built on the idea that if you know enough, you can predict anything. But Godel's theorem shows that mathematics have finite limits when it comes to explaining behavior. And Heisenberg's principle sets finite limits of what can be observed. Thus, there are limits to what can be known. Put together, as argued here by Malcolm, if science had any hope to be able to know enough in order to predict anything, Godel and Heisenberg have shown that there are finite limits to what can be known, and therefore, consequentially, what can be predicted. Even with von Neumann's terrific computing, accounting for more variables than ever before possible, accurate predictability of complex systems, like the weather, is impossible. Malcolm says chaos theory embraces unpredictability and calculated where the deviations in the system would occur in his report to Hammond. All right, that was a lot. Stylistic techniques, anthropomorphization, or otherwise known as personification. But the neck tapered to an absurdly small head with a stupid gaze like a very dumb horse, is said on 154. This is Crichton playing upon the concept that a stegosaur's brain case was the size of a walnut, even though the animal itself was hugely massive. The belief has always been they must have been very simple creatures. So Crichton embraces that belief and says, therefore, it has a, quote, stupid gaze. How does a reptile have a stupid gaze? Is its tongue hanging out? Does it have buck teeth and crossed eyes? How does it look very stupid? Are its eyelids half closed? Does it appear sleepy? None of these things are described, even though they could. It is tranquilized. But really, this is just Crichton offering human characteristics to an animal. So readers get the idea that classic dinosaur literature is adamant that the walnut-sized brain of Stegosaurus meant that they were stupid. But I'm not sure there's any way an animal can just appear to look very dumb. Any more than they appear to look anything. But for real, I'd love to know how a stegosaurus operated with such a small brain. What were its behaviors, behavioral limits? How did it interact and adapt to stimuli in its environment? What with mathematically, basically, a peanut for a brain? It's just fascinating. Similes. A peculiar odor like rotting fish. If you've had the unfortunate, though common, chance to, uh, to smell rotten fish, you know how physically repulsive that is. 
I presume that this guy, the stegosaur, must smell mildly of rotten fish, or else you'd probably stay right away from it. Uh, Crichton employs kind of a cliffhanger here. Then he stopped. Ellie, he said, take a look at this on 157. Some people complain that Dan Brown does this too much in his novels, making a cliffhanger out of everything. Well, Crichton does it well here, though. Perhaps using it sparingly spares him this critique as well. But the foreshadowing continues. Yes, Grant said, it's a velociraptor egg. The end. <laughs> Literary techniques. The pacing. Crichton moves the narrative quickly now, not explaining that everyone got out of the land cruisers to inspect the animals, but rather implying it by having the characters interacting with the animal almost immediately. He rejects any formal introductions with Dr. Harding, rushing forward as the vet is merely mentioned by Regis in a passing moment. The narrative moves very quickly in this chapter. Cohesion and dramatic irony. Malcolm predicted specific areas where deviations would occur. The fitness of the animals to the environment was one area, thus predicting the stegosaurs' routine illnesses and the ability of the park to control the spread of life forms. And then, Ellie and Grant are waving their arms and shouting, Come see what they found! And blam! Just as Malcolm is going over how the park will fail to control the spread of life forms, he is immediately validated by the discovery of a dinosaur eggshell, showing that life forms are spreading beyond the control of the park. Dialogue. Ellie speaks primarily with Lex early in this chapter, and Lex is drawn to her because Sattler is a female, probably, and perhaps a pseudo-mother figure? We can consider that. The back and forth with Dr. Harding doesn't have much conflict in it, which is fine for a normal conversation, but it's kind of bad piece of fiction writing, where conflict equates to drama. So after a few paragraphs of Harding and Sattler investigating the sixth Stegosaurus, Crichton infuses the scene with more drama from Lex, who interrupts by saying, this is boring. Then more conflict as Tim shushes her, and they get a little disagreement. So it's not boring anymore, but we've got some conflict to make this more interesting, right? I think it would have been better if Sattler and Harding were disagreeing, but oh well. Uh, but there's a narrative dualism. We've got some conflict with the characters, as well as a puzzle to solve. You can appreciate that Crichton has identified an area where the pacing halts, so they can pause on the mystery and show some of Sattler's character, but employs a few techniques to keep it feeling punchy. And in the exposition, while Malcolm is providing a history lesson on the field of science, scientific principles, predictive modeling, and chaos theory, Crichton has Gennaro playing catch with Lex to keep things light, adding action to the exposition. And this reminds me specifically of a scriptwriting workshop I took once with the late, great Wayne McLean from Wayne's Movie World Film Script Consulting in Windsor, Ontario. Wayne passed away in 2018, but I know he left a legacy of people with big ambitions to write engaging scripts, and I'll never forget one of the clips from the workshop was from A Few Good Men, the Tom Cruise movie. And Tom Cruise is running a baseball practice while arguing with some guy about an upcoming court case that they're both involved in. It's a scene of exposition, but it's uh, but to keep it engaging and visually interesting, there's also baseball, America's national pastime. Crichton's doing what A Few Good Men is doing. And who wrote A Few Good Men? Well, Aaron Sorkin who only wrote distinguished scripts recognized for their writing like The Social Network, Moneyball, Molly's Game, and more. In other words, this is how you do exposition, and Crichton does that, and it's worth acknowledging it here. Discussions. Let's, uh, let's talk about these six stegos. The stegos are sick. They're getting routinely poisoned by something, probably a toxic plant, but instead of just getting rid of the toxic plant and seeing if it has an effect on their health, they rather inspect all the bushes and dig through the diarrhea and watch them eat. Whether you can observe that they're eating the toxic berries or not, wouldn't the very first thing you obviously do be take away the toxic plants? Before digging through the crap and scanning the monitors for what they're eating all day, remember they're constant foragers, they never stop eating, you'd have to watch them around the clock to identify what it is they're eating. Also, I think traces of these toxic berries would reveal themselves in the dinosaur droppings, right? I mean, if they can inspect the droppings to spot whether the West Indian lilac 
isn't in them, wouldn't they also be able to tell if the West Indian lilac berries were in there at the same time? Without thinking too deeply on the matter of the six stegos, we can agree that this little plot point is a bit contrived, but to good effect. Sattler is a great character, and this is a time for her to make an impact in the park. As a scientist, consultant, paleobotanist, and apparently a regular old botanist too, she's a tenacious problem solver, and she really shines in this moment, and there's no wonder this moment was specifically adapted into the film. Chaos Theory. Malcolm gets a chance to say that he's not hoping to be right, and perhaps that he's not necessarily personally invested in the outcome of the mathematics, although he is and will be. But rather, he believes in the theory. The calculations are correct, and the outcome should be respected. Quote, it's nothing to do with me, he says, although the character is written with enough gumption and personality that it's hard to think his self-indulgent charisma isn't being pampered while he makes his argument. He says, hey, the math is good. You must listen to what it says. Feeling like Malcolm only predicts things after they've happened seems too convenient for Gennaro. But then, it's nice to see that one of his predictions, that life will expand, predicts the next deviation beforehand. And Gennaro also apparently didn't read Malcolm's report. (laughs) How do you like that? Easter eggs. The eggshell fragment is, quote, no larger than a postage stamp on 160, which Alan Grant discovers. Positively identifying something from just a fragment is an entirely paleontologist thing to do, which is awesome. Crichton could have written that they found a whole damn nest or a bunch of eggs clear as day, but he doesn't, and I like that a lot. And Grant evokes what he knows about dinosaur eggs. Remember, he wrote the book on dinosaur babies and nesting sites, including patterning on the interior surface, the interior curve, a faint pattern of raised lines which make roughly triangular shapes. He's dug eggs like this before in Montana. The curvature of the egg is, quote, almost flat, and it's very thick, we're told on 160, making it a fragment from a, quote, very big egg comparable to an ostrich. Grant identifies it as a velociraptor egg. Harding is Mr. Magoo. (laughs) What I'm trying to say is he doesn't see very well. He's unobservant. Is Dr. Harding a good vet? He can't find toxic berries in the dinosaur spore when he goes looking for toxins. He doesn't bother removing toxic berries from the field when the dinosaurs are mysteriously getting poisoned all the time over a span of many months. Like, the stegos are getting sick every six weeks and also all the time. That would suggest that it's recurred at least three times. That's multiple months of inaction when the extraordinarily valuable animals might die. And we're told in an earlier chapter that two stegosaurs have died. As for the dinosaur eggshell... His first instinct is that it's a bird egg, suggesting there are dozens of species on the island, which is bonkers. He has potentially seen eggshells before and been dismissive of them. Harding also refutes that the eggshell is a dinosaur egg because he believes, nay, he knows, that, quote, these dinosaurs can't breed, on page 160. Harding refutes ideas and observations that don't jive with his work, which is probably how he comes to overlook so many things on the island. And we can accept that the dinosaurs are breeding in the park, which therefore requires that There are some male animals in the park, which Harding has also failed to notice. Is it hard to identify males from females? Well, on the tour in this book, Dr. Henry Wu says, quote, sex organs vary with the species. It's easy to tell on some, subtle on others, on page 109. Extrapolating from that quote, Wu says they can identify male sex organs easily in some species and with some difficulty in other species. This suggests that he has observed male sex organs across several species, enough to make a generalization that there are two types of gonads, the easy-to-spot type and the hard-to-spot type. This would also require that some species be allowed to mature for, for long enough for the sex organs to be more obvious, or that there's some sexual dimorphism in that different genders 
in a single species have different shapes and sizes. In any case, it's clear that Wu, who can't even name the dinosaurs, can tell their gender by observation. But the vet hasn't. The guy who treats the animals, feeds the animals, does routine health inspections on the animals, hasn't observed that some of the animals are males and, frankly, uh, doing the mating dance. So, like, Dr. Harding, what's up, man? Role models in feminism. Sattler connects with Lex in this chapter. The two females have a moment together, and it's in a generally, I guess, stereotypical role of either caregiver or nurse. And Lex gravitates to Sattler in this chapter while, while, uh, while Sattler's doing these things. Then we get Sattler's body being described a bit more. Quote, she set off toward the field to examine the plants more closely. Her body bent over the ground on page 156. Nobody else's body is doing stuff in this chapter. Hers is mentioned, though. Grant's body isn't mentioned. Dr. Harding's body isn't mentioned. And Crichton continues to mention some part of Sattler's anatomy, whether intentionally or not. He, she's continuously referred to by, the, by her body and her body parts, and that's all I got to say about that. I guess, well leaving this conversation on a bit of an awkward note. Signing off today, I want to give a great big thank you to Gavin Michael Booth for coming back and being on the show. Good luck and everything, bud. It's always a thrill seeing, seeing what you and Sarah get up to. And I want to sign off today thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book, add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book. Or also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Park Cast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens Funny Pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, The Infantry, and the worst of them all, The King Street Game. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash spring chicken capers or me on twitter at rogers ryan 22 thank you dearly for tuning into the jurassic park cast the jurassic park podcast where we talk about the novel jurassic park and also not sacrifice to the inhuman creature darkness spreads across the land a thousand years unending Feel